An hour north of downtown Houston on I-45 is Huntsville, the home base of Texas' enormous prison system. Carrie Blakinger, a corrections reporter for the Marshall Project, recently published a story called The Rise and Fall of a Prison Town Queen. In it, she tells the story of Melinda Brewer, and along the way, she captures Huntsville and the lives of the people who work in the prison system in a way that I have never seen before. It is Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022. I'm Lisa Gray, and this is CityCast Houston. Hey, Carrie. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Can you start by reading the first two paragraphs of your story about the First Lady of Huntsville? Gladly. It is 11 a.m. on a Saturday, and the sun is shining on the shores of Lake Conroe, where the woman, once known as the First Lady of Huntsville, Texas, is standing in the kitchen of her townhouse, stirring tequila into her crystal light. It's strong because, fuck, I've been through a lot in the last two months, Melinda Brewer says, reaching for the pack of menthols on the granite counter. She is short, with tattooed eyeliner, bleached blonde hair, and a brawny build. She looks like she might punch you, and if she does, it'll hurt. I think that could have been, like, the beginning of so many hard-boiled detective novels that I have loved in my life. (laughs) (laughs) I love this story, and, like... Part of what I love is that not only do we get a pretty great character sketch of Melinda Brewer and, you know, what happened with her life, but we get to know a lot about Huntsville, Texas, prison town, USA. Yeah, it is. Huntsville, Texas is the prisoniest prison town in the country, probably. (laughs) They have. (laughs) So, you know, they have like seven prisons in town and, and two within like a half hour drive. But then there's also all this other prison-owned land and property. They have all these prison farms, like acres and acres of prison farms. They have, you know, prison-run factories. Um, You know, they have the death chamber there. They have the prison museum. You know, there's the Criminal Justice College at Sam Houston, which the main building for which is named after a former prison director. It's sort of like everywhere you go, you run into something prison-related. Right across from the oldest prison in town, there is a hamburger place that has burgers with names like Warden Burger and Old Sparky. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, yes, there's lots of You have to love there. the details. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite lines is that Huntsville is like a cross between Game of Thrones and a Walmart. Yes. I, I think that really sort of also encapsulates something important about Huntsville because on the one hand, you have a lot of these really low-paying jobs that just fucking suck, frankly. You know, if you're working in a prison, like you're you're putting out literal fires, you're getting feces thrown at you. Like these are low paying, you know, treacherous jobs a lot of the time. Right. Uh, but then you also have the possibility to move up into these jobs that have a lot of power. You know, if you're at the top of the Texas prison system, you're overseeing tens of thousands of prisoners and 20 or 30,000 staff you have a huge budget at your disposal. You're making six figures. You know, you you have a lot of power in, you know, in your world and in Huntsville. Okay, that brings us back to Melinda Brewer, who we started with, with the, drinking her crystal light and tequila at 9 a.m. So one of the things I love is, like, how thin the line is between criminals and the prison system. You can see that in how she grew up. Could you... Like, talk about where she's from. 
Yeah, so Melinda grew up in Trinity, Texas, which is, you know, a little bit east. It's geographically a little bit east, but culturally, I would say it feels very far east <laughs> of, of Huntsville. And so, like, even more country, even more rural? I was struck by driving through downtown um, how it felt like everything was either a trailer or a prefab building. Like, it almost reminded me of a child's train set because there were so many things that were just rectangular because they were trailers or they were prefab and, you know, not sort of more permanent structures. Yeah. Okay, so she grew up there and she was in kind of a crime family, right? Yeah, so her mother got pregnant when she was 12. Melinda's mother, Kathy. Melinda's mother, yes. Kathy got pregnant when she was 12 and, you know, gave birth to Melinda when she was 13. And and her father was not ever prosecuted for that or anything, even though I think he was about 20 at the time. And he ended up in and out of prison and jail some for, you know, some drug-related and gun-related charges over the years. And so she ended up being raised, Melinda ended up being raised by her grandparents who uh, ran a, you know, underground gambling den and were bootlegging and things like that. And, you know, they also ran a convenience store or grocery store or whatever. Um, But, you know, she grew up in this lifestyle where, you know, there was a lot of crime in her family. And, you know, she said she first realized that her family was like definitely different and definitely doing illegal things when she watched her dad, you know, being driven off to prison in the back of a cop car. And that this is one of her early memories. So she wanted to get away from that sort of life. She wanted to be, you know, legit. She wanted to be not committing crimes. She wanted to be not getting arrested. And this was always sort of her goal was to have a legit life and to have it outside of Trinity and, Huntsville was the big city. So she had sort of dreamed of getting to Huntsville. And then by her mid-20s, she ends up finally getting there and getting hired in the prison system and working her way up. Okay, so what job did she get? So she started as a count room clerk, which is just sort of count, you know, making sure that all the inmates are there. Um, And then over the years, she worked up to being in charge of facilities for the whole state and also over that time frame, she'd started dating a sergeant and then, you know, they end up getting married eventually. And over the course of it, she keeps pushing him to promote higher and higher. And he ends up being regional director. And this is a big deal. Yeah, there's six regional directors. I mean, it's a six figure job. It's, there's six regional directors. It's the level right below um, being in charge of all of the prisons. The boss, the person above her husband, you know, was standing there with her husband and they called Melinda together to say, you know, hey, he's regional director now. And she was like, well, now you're the first lady of Huntsville. And then we come to the turning point in Melinda's life. So it starts with a food truck. Can you describe that food truck? Yeah. So after... Wayne and Melinda got, you know, their, after Wayne became regional director and they got the regional director's house and they bought a, you know, house on Lake Conroe and they decided they wanted to start a little side gig running a food truck. They got this fried fish trailer and it's this bright red trailer with a little, um, a shark on the side that's wearing, or it's a catfish, I think, that's wearing, um, Wayne's sunglasses 
and because he always wears the same sunglasses. And then uh-huh. there's a shrimp that's like the sexy shrimp. It's got like Melinda's <laughs> eyeliner. It's very cute. But um, they called it Chase and Tail. Of course they did. <laughs> right? <laughs> I think it's the best part of the whole thing. <laughs> All right. And they need somebody to help them run Chase and Tail. Right. So, you know, they decide to hire Melinda's mom, Kathy. Now, Melinda Kathy, and Kathy – 12 years older than Melinda. Right. And, and they've always had bad blood. Or not always. They had times when they got okay. along, but they very frequently had, you know, some bad blood. And Melinda was skeptical about hiring Kathy, but at that point, Kathy was also just getting over cancer. And, you know, they were sort of like, this is the time to mend fences. And, you know, Melinda was worried from the get-go and was like, you know, this is going to end badly. Um, yeah. So they hire Kathy and it's okay at first. And then they get into this crazy blowout fight on Easter when Wayne and Melinda go over to Kathy's house in Trinity. And Melinda decides to confront Kathy about some things that have been bothering her because she's heard that Kathy is texting with a former inmate who used to work for Wayne when he was in prison. And uh, also that she's renovating her garage to have a um, white supremacist gang member move in upon his imminent release from federal prison. Oy, yay, yay. So, yeah. and these things are the are problems. Not the, the federal prison guy is actually not as much of a problem for Melinda. The bigger problem is the texting with the state prison guy because that could be a policy violation for her. And she was worried that this was going to make her and Wayne lose their jobs because if you have any contact with prisoners like or you know recently released prisoners texas prisoners you have to report it to the texas prison system like they want to know what your relationships are to inmates and they're afraid it will look like he's and they're afraid they would get fired because it would look like he yeah. failed to disclose a relationship with a prisoner among his family members because at that point you know Kathy is family right right so you know they get into a fight over this And, you know, Kathy thinks that Melinda's just trying to control her life. Melinda thinks that Kathy's going to get her fired. And, you know, it ends with with Melinda throwing a Yeti cup full of some liquid, which, you know, Kathy says was vodka and Melinda says was tea. Melinda assures me she would not waste vodka like that. But so she she throws a Yeti cup full of whatever, like Uh across the room. And, you know, storms out and, you know, her daughter swipes a dinner roll off the table on their way out and they leave. And um, (laughs) I love the way that Melinda owns up to this, too. Like, she was like, yes, I threw that cup. And she was like, and then I got outside and I was like, motherfucker, I forgot my Yeti cup. (laughs) Um, So Kathy quits or gets fired in in the course of that Easter fight. There's some dispute as to how that went down, but whatever. And then she gets mad that she wasn't fully paid. And, um, you know, they get into this little spat over it. And then Kathy is like, you know, I still have your computer. And that is a, you know, veiled threat because a few years earlier, Melinda had been trying to dispose of a computer. So she put it on the burn pile out back of Kathy's house because in Trinity, you just burn shit. You burn computers. Yeah, you burn what you you have. You have. This a burn isn't pack. sketchy. This this sounds weird, Carrie. All right, it's Trinity. <laughs> Do you think this is the weirdest thing? <laughs> All right. So so years ago, 
she gave her mom a computer for the burn pile. Yes. And the mom has now. And the mom says she hasn't, hasn't fully burned it. Like it was lit on fire, but not completely destroyed. And the mom is, is of the belief that this is a prison computer that Melinda has stolen and has evidence of bad things on it. And she was trying okay. to dispose of this. And Melinda said, no, it was actually just a computer, a personal computer. And she told her mom it was a prison computer because she thought if her mom knew that it was a personal computer, then she would try to get into it and steal her identity. <laughs> because she had, you know, allegedly stolen a sibling's identity or something previously. Okay. So the mom is threatening her. I have this computer. Right. So Kathy, the mom, wants Melinda and Wayne to give her the money she believes she's owed, right? Right. Wayne and Melinda get worried that the mom is going to call the prison investigators and tell them. um, Because that's the implication, that she's going to try to get them in trouble. So then they proactively call the investigators and tell them, like, hey, you know, my mom might tell you this, but here's what really the deal is. Like, it's not a prison computer. And if it had been a prison computer, like... They they should have noticed. Like, that is the sort of fixed asset that would be tracked. So the right. idea that it would have been a prison computer missing for that long, it would have been, you know, in her name with an ID number. Like, it, it, you right. would have known. Um, and somehow in the course of that, they stumble across these allegations that, you know, Kathy had been selling these drugs in the prison parking lot. And the people who bought the drugs are the ones who who said what happened. So what they were saying was that Kathy, the mom, was selling the drugs in the prison parking lot? Right. I'm frankly still surprised that they prosecuted her with this evidence because it's not a ton of evidence. Um, She was arrested largely on the word of the people that she, you know, allegedly sold the drugs to. And, you know, they got like canceled checks, um, which, of course, she says were for uh furniture, I think. And then they have some text messages, I think, which, you know, I don't think were actually in the records that I could see. So I don't know exactly how damning those text messages are or are not. Um, So in any case, this arrest occurs and um, somehow in the aftermath, Melinda and Wayne both get you know, administratively separated from their jobs, which is effectively the same thing as being fired, except that there's no disciplinary action with it, which means there's no records I can request to figure out the exact reasoning. So why would Melinda and Wayne get fired if it was Kathy who was supposedly selling drugs? Closest we ever came to finding out was much later when Melinda filed for unemployment and they, you know, tried to fight her on it and they went to Texas Workforce Commission and the Texas prison system, you know, told the Texas Workforce Commission that this might have been related to bad publicity caused by Melinda's mother's arrest, which is really interesting because the article that they attached as evidence of the bad publicity that you know, that Melinda and Wayne were allegedly bringing down on the prison system was actually my article that came out after they'd been fired. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So clearly it could not have gone back in time and caused them to be fired. Yeah, it's still so mysterious to me. But Melinda is pretty sure it has something to do with her mom, Kathy, right? 
Well, I mean, this is, the timing yeah. of it. You right. know, I mean, they were administratively separated right after this arrest happened. And, you know, TDCJ did say that it was related to this. And I'm not sure that their explanation as to what that relationship was, was accurate. But it was right after all this that I met her that time when I went to her house and she's, you know, stirring tequila into her crystal light. So she was taking it hard. She was. And this is one yeah. of the things that I was so... It, it, was, it was sort of a blessing of the pandemic was that instead of writing this story then, instead of writing it three months later, it sort of got backburnered for two years. So I actually, I spent a lot of time on the phone with her over the course of the pandemic. Um, there was a lot of, you know, 2 a.m. phone calls as she's remembering things from her childhood, which was frankly far, far, far worse than I put in the story. Like there was just a lot of abuse going on, like a really, truly shocking amount over the course of that, I also got to sort of watch her go through the grieving process and, you know, appreciate more how devastating this was to her. Because, you know, I, again, I know that a lot of people who follow me are not going to have a lot of sympathy for, for prison officials. And setting aside what the job is, I do think a lot of people kind of understand that if you've worked in a job for 20, 30 years, sort of one of your proudest achievements is like getting away from your past through this job, then, you know, losing that is such a loss of identity and accomplishment and future. And not just for her, but for Wayne, because Wayne started working in Texas prisons when he was 18. Wow. The first time I talked to her, she was still sort of bitter, you know, and then you know, the next time she she was crying, like, you know, she's sort of gotten to the lost stage. We had lunch outside somewhere and we were on the patio and this was right before the pandemic, like a few weeks before. And it was just pouring rain and she was crying so hard. Like the 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 waiter kept coming over to us to check and be like, are, are you guys okay? And I was like, oh my God, what do they think I'm doing to this poor woman? <laughs> Um, but it was yeah. just a really raw moment. Right. And eventually they both got new jobs working for a golf course where he was doing security and she was doing accounting and everyone <laughs> called him warden. Like that was his nickname <laughs> at work. And I mean, it was, a, it was a long grieving process and, you know, and I totally get it. I, I mean, I, I understand that like sort of loss of identity and stuff. That was one of the interesting things about reporting it over this long of a time period. Is that... It has time to turn from a tragedy into a happy ending. They've escaped that prison-y crime world and are now out on a golf course. Yeah. And, you know, and Wayne said it at the end. He said something about that it was a blessing to get out of there. And um, Melinda just, she's very rarely quiet, but she just sort of silently nodded in agreement. And I was like, wow, it is, it is so nice to see them coming to peace with this. Yeah. I like this story so much. Thank you so much for telling it. Yes, good to, good to talk to you as always. In our show notes, we will have a link to Carrie's story, The Rise and Fall of a Prison Town Queen. And y'all, you want to read this one. Besides fascinating stuff about the prison system, there is an entire crazy car chase that we didn't have time to talk about. Hey, y'all. It's lead producer Dina Kespa here. I want to tell y'all about a story I've been following today. It's about a minister named Brian Millers who suffers from PTSD. He wasn't allowed into a dive bar because he had a service dog with him. 
Now, this has kind of sparked a debate over this whole policy of allowing service dogs into businesses. The minister had showed up at the Crazy Girl Saloon in Humble to preach with members of the Saved Savage Ministries. It's a traveling congregation of veterans and Christians based all around the city. He tried to go into the bar with his dog, but then he was told his dog couldn't even be on the property. So he left and he took his frustrations out on Facebook, like we all do, right? We hit social media whenever something bothers us. And the debate took off from there. And it was between Brian and somebody who was a rep from the Crazy Girl Saloon. Now in Texas, refusing service to someone who uses a service animal is actually illegal. In a Houston Chronicle article I read, Brian said that he's not likely going to be taking any legal action against the bar. He just really wants to get the word out about what happened to him. But more importantly, he wants people with any disabilities to know where not to go. That's all for our show today. If you have comments or ideas for a show that we ought to do, call or text us, 713-489-6972. We will be back tomorrow. Talk with you then.